Let me ask you a question. What do we mean when we talk about home? Is it a feeling? An emotion? A place? If it's a place, is it one we're running away from or one we spend our whole lives trying to get back to? Is it one we luck into or one we create? Or is it something else entirely? A memory? An aspiration? A dream? Well, like everything else, it depends who you ask. I come from uh, the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and moved to Los Angeles in 1985, 86. And, uh, there was a time when I realized that all had shifted, and whenever I would say I'm going home, it didn't mean I was going back to Atlanta, it meant that I was going back to Los Angeles. And it's just where you surround yourself with the things and the people and the attitudes that you love, for me. Home is where the dysfunction is, in my life, at least. I'm standing in an Airbnb kitchen, but it feels like home because my mother's doing that thing and my dad is getting annoyed by that thing, and you know what I mean? It's just a nest. Um, a refuge, um, peace. That's a lot of words already. <laughs> Where you came from, um, more than a place, it's that emotional feeling of uh, being together with people you love. Home makes me think of having dinner with my kids or having dinner with my family and sitting around and playing cards after meals and watching TV and uh, being together around the dinner table and cooking meals together. Yeah. I think of a place, but it's a place I've created for myself that feels safe, that I can invite people in there, but I don't have to have people in there. <laughs> Whether it's a city, a place, a different country, or just a different location that's in the same city, as long as I feel it, to be home uh, worthy, I call it home. Home is where the dogs are. <laughs> this is a podcast about home, what it means, and why, as seen through the lens of life here in Southern California. Now, you're going to hear a lot of different kinds of voices in the coming weeks because L.A. is a polyglot place, one of the shores where the wave of manifest destiny broke and washed us up. We Americans moved west like our lives depended on it, which, of course, they did in a way, until we couldn't move west anymore, and we ran out of land, ran out of America, right here. That left a lot of us, Easterners, Midwesterners, Okies, and Arkies, travelers and transplants of all kinds, standing around scratching our heads, socio-culturally and historically speaking. And some of us turned around and hit the road back, but some others of us stayed and made lives in the vibrant, messy world of the country's western edge. So let me start by telling you just one L.A. story, mine. It's a story about home and place and the way the ground can shift under your feet. My L.A. story, like a lot of them, begins somewhere else, 3,000 miles away in an apartment in New York City. It was small, a one-bedroom, just over 600 square feet, but by the time I bought it in the spring of 1989, I'd been living in an even smaller studio apartment for seven years, a third-generation illegal subtenant of a woman I'd never even met. It was one of those New York deals. Every evening, I'd collect my mail from a mailbox with someone else's name on it, and every night, I'd fold out a sofa bed. 
and every morning I'd fold it up again. And I mean every morning. I was religious about it. Because I knew that living in one room was at least potentially sad, but living in one room and coming home late at night to find the sofa bed unfolded and rumpled, just as I'd left it that morning, sprawled across the room like a passed-out drunk, well, that was actually sad. I did know that much. So, having two rooms to rattle around in, and let me say it again, a whole 600 square feet, well, that felt like luxury. I was a young guy on my own in New York, and I had a tiny balcony overlooking 85th and Columbus, and if I went to the end and arranged myself just right, like a figurehead on the prow of a pirate ship, I could see the lights of Midtown on summer nights. I loved that apartment. I loved it the way some guys love their first girlfriend, or good scotch, or the Yankees, with my whole heart. It was the first place I'd ever lived that was entirely mine, wall to wall. It was my home. I was just starting out, my life was laid out in front of me like a freshly paved superhighway, running straight ahead to the horizon, and I didn't have any trouble believing I'd live in that apartment for years, and years, and years. I lived there for six months. So, what happened? Well, life happened, the way it does. Out of the blue, I got offered a job in television in Los Angeles. I didn't know anything about television or Los Angeles. I'd never thought much about living there. Still, it was a good offer. Not quite too good to be true, but too good to turn down. It was one of those moments when life places something in your path, a package, and you can either step around it and keep going, or bend down and pick it up, shake it, and see what's inside. I remember telling my father that I was too young to play it safe, liking the sound of it, and almost believing it. Besides, the way I had it figured, I had a safety net, and I intended to stretch it from coast to coast. I'd keep the apartment. Not only that, I'd keep it unoccupied. Indefinitely. So it would always be there for me if things blew up across the country. I could always just come home. <laughs> Okay, let's pause right here to acknowledge the obvious. This was nuts. It was an extravagance on the scale of, well, years later, I bought an expensive massage chair from Sharper Image because I don't remember why I was obsessed with the thing. And then, of course, I never used it because it was a massage chair. Anyway, the massage chair became for me and my wife the gold standard of, and the term itself a shorthand for, fiscal irresponsibility of an epic kind keeping the New York apartment empty while I continued to pay the mortgage and maintenance, on top of the rent we'd be paying in L.A., well, I was a massage chair every single month. The fact that the bump in salary I'd be making as a TV writer made the plan possible didn't alter the fact that the plan was insane. But it was my plan, such as it was. That was how I got myself to go. By telling myself that New York was my home, the place where the ground felt solid under my feet, and if I kept the apartment and kept it unoccupied and things went south in California, I could, on a moment's notice, just come back. So off I went. I got on a plane at JFK in the gray late fall and emerged blinking in the sunshine six hours later, my down parka stuffed under my arm. My girlfriend Jennifer, later my wife, followed in her car on a cross-country road trip. And I started work and Jennifer started a master's program at USC, and we set up housekeeping in a rented apartment in Santa Monica. It was good. It was fun. 
It was new. But it felt like I was perched in California, balanced on a branch, not quite living there. Keep the place at arm's length. That was the thing to do. So I did. And whenever I could, a couple of times a year, I jump on a plane and fly home to New York. I take a cab in from the airport, through Queens, over the Triborough Bridge, Manhattan unwinding itself to the south, a million lights against the early evening sky. Across the island and down the west side, my heart starting to engage again with every tick of the taxi meter. And I'd emerge at 85th and Columbus, take the elevator to the 12th floor, and put my key in the lock, jiggle it just right, and swing the door open. To an apartment that was exactly the same as when I'd last been there, months before. The same magazines on the end table. The same books on the nightstand. The TV remote, right where I'd left it. The TV, tuned to the same channel. Now, it should be said, I did have a blast when I was there. I reveled in just being there. I'd leave the apartment in the morning, turn right onto 85th and right again on Columbus, and I'd walk for hours, exploring, reconnecting with bookstores and corner newsstands and coffee shops. I'd see friends. I barely noticed the way the other tenants of my building would eyeball me at the mailboxes when I returned. A stranger. I was that guy who lived in 12A, sort of, but not really. I came and went in the life of the building like a ghost. Did I still love the place? Absolutely. But the truth is, it was a dusty, inanimate spot to call home. Time had stopped there. It was like living in a diorama at the Natural History Museum. And this went on for four years. Now, don't misunderstand, it wasn't that I didn't have a life in Los Angeles. I had a relationship, a job, co-workers, friends. Jennifer and I fixed up the apartment and made it comfortable. A life? Sure. But a home? By my own design? No. We were sleeping. Of course we were. It was 4.30 in the morning, January 1994. The rumbling seemed to rise right up out of the sandy soil from zero to 60 in no time flat. At least that's how I remember it. It was a terrible sound. A deep, malign, low-frequency roar that almost immediately resolved into what sounded like a freight train rolling past our bedroom windows. And rolling. And rolling. And rolling. The drawers hurtled out of our dressers like they were trying to escape. Off in the kitchen, we could hear the cupboards emptying, glassware falling to the floor and shattering. Some instinct made me cover Jennifer with my body and murmur, hang on, it's okay. It'll be over in a second. I honestly don't know where I came up with that one. I remember a dim thought in that moment that I was protecting her from the huge air conditioning units that sat on the roof of our three-story apartment building directly overhead, three giant steel boxes that seemed pretty likely to come crashing through our bedroom ceiling any minute now. In which case, by the way, we both would have been crushed, so, you know, so much for heroism. It did end, eventually. We got up and picked our way out to the living room, stepping over nightstands and dressers, and the things that until a minute before had been in them. I could hear car alarms going off all over the neighborhood, people shouting distantly. The place was a shambles. 
We managed to get Jennifer's family on the phone to let them know we were okay and ask them to call my family. And then we stood around mutely, trying to figure out what to do next. After a while, the sun came up. I remember telling Jennifer I had to get outside for a few minutes, get oriented, see what was what. So we threw on some clothes and went out. I don't hear any audio. Okay. Okay. We're here in the Channel 4 newsroom, as you folks. There's no surprise. For any folks this morning, we've been hit with a major earthquake. Right now, we're trying to basically gather some more information, trying to figure out where this has been centered. I'm not sure if we can take a look around that right now, but half the newsroom behind me has been disheveled a lot of television. Our neighborhood was hit not as hard as some others, but hard enough. Some of the building fronts showed huge cracks in the stucco, like scars. One or two of the older structures looked not quite right somehow. You couldn't quite figure out why until you looked closer, and then you could see they shifted on their foundations, and now they were subtly misaligned, like decks of cards that had been carelessly cut. And we wandered. People would walk past, doing what we were doing, whatever that was, and we'd glance at each other or ask if they were okay, and they'd nod, and we'd keep going. Up ahead, we could see a clot of people at the corner of 7th and Colorado, and we aimed ourselves at it. It was a Winchell's Donut Shop. It was 6.30 in the morning, the morning of the biggest earthquake to hit Los Angeles in years, and the Winchell's was open for business. So, what were we going to do? We got in line. I still don't know how the donut shop came to be open that morning, whether the owners were the kind of dedicated small business people who simply shook off inconveniences like earthquakes, or whether they saw an opportunity there to own the market, at least for a day whatever, they were open, and they were serving. A few people in line ahead of us were in pajamas and bathrobes. Some were talking, some not. At one point, a fire engine roared up, and the entire line, as one, swung to the side and let the firemen jump the queue. And then they leapt back on their truck and rolled away to applause. Eventually, we got to the counter. Uh, I have to say, the selection was a little picked over by then, but we pointed, and they handed us a couple of cinnamon donuts, and we handed them some money. The donuts were warm and sugary, and 21 years later, I can stand here and tell you they remain the best thing I ever ate. Because these weren't just any donuts. These were donuts that talked, and what they said in all their warm, greasy, delicious wisdom was, you're okay, you're alive. This moment, this place, this is life, and it isn't done with you yet. I'm not going to tell you I had some great awakening that morning. I was far too shook up for that, and that would be too neat, and it's not true. What I can tell you is that something shifted in me that day. There's something about a place where you get scared almost to death. You either go or you stay. And the thing is, it never seriously occurred to us to go. Later that year, long after we'd swept up the broken glass and put the furniture back together and stopped keeping one ear cocked for aftershocks, and the normal rhythms of life resumed, without even thinking very hard about it, I arranged to put tenants in the New York apartment. 
A year later, when their lease was up and I listed the place for sale, it was an anticlimax because, and I barely noticed it happening, it had gone from being my home to being property, an asset. And it was time to let it go. For reasons that had seemed to make sense at the time, I'd put my life under glass in those two rooms. And then, later, when those reasons didn't quite pertain anymore, I'd lifted the glass and reclaimed it. And that had at least started in the parking lot of a donut shop, in a place where the ground was not the least bit solid under my feet. So maybe home is the place where you come to life, or come back to it. Sometimes it's the place you start from, sure, but other times it's a place you arrive at, because that's one you make for yourself, in the company of others, with a false start or two along the way. Unless it isn't a place at all. Memory. Aspiration. Dream. There are as many different ways to think about home as there are stories about home, and in this podcast, I'm going to tell you some. From here in the West, where the land ran out. I hope you'll listen. <laughs>